from Supreme Court Justice Sonia Sotomayor to wokey-woke college professors and students, this is one of the most repeated pro-abortion arguments. So I wanted to give it a full episode treatment for you as a forever evergreen episode to get equipped and to share with your pro-abortion friends. Here's the argument. The embryo is really just sort of parallel to like a brain-dead person. You remember Sonia Sotomayor actually made this very exact argument during the Dobbs versus Jackson Women's Health Supreme Court hearings regarding the Mississippi 15-week abortion ban, which, if upheld, will overturn Roe versus Wade. And she made this argument. <laughs> she literally said, you know, some brain-dead people have spontaneous physical activities, and they just jerk. And I don't see how that's really any different from an embryo. <laughs> so you hear this from the highest courts in our land to wokey-woke college students from UC Berkeley, that if brain death is the end of a person, then brain function must mark the beginning of a person. And to the untrained of mind, this may sound persuasive, but it's not. It's just another attempt to separate being human from being a person with rights, which only and always ends in savage inequality. I'm Seth Gruber, and this is Unaborted. Welcome to the show today, guys. Thank you so much for tuning in. We are finally back from D.C., and we'll be releasing a lot of um, exciting and really encouraging, some somber interviews with pro-life leaders um, who were all in D.C. last week, and I really think you're going to enjoy some of those as we, as we release those, and I'll be sharing more thoughts about my time in D.C. We did get to experience an abortion flash mob dance rally put on by very disturbed individuals. One of the groups who put that on was called Thank God for Abortion, um, in case you ever wondered how dogmatic and religious the abortion adherents are to their alternative religion. And we did some man-on-the-street content and got some really good uh, content until the, the pro-abortion activists realized that I was not there to give them an opportunity to speak truth to power, but I was there to challenge their bigotry, at which point they started pulling their little friends away, saying, uh, oh, don't talk to him, don't talk to him. He's a far-right fake news Nazi, I think I got called one time. So very interesting that for people who are so passionate about their beliefs, they don't seem to have the courage of their convictions to simply use an opportunity on film to make a case for their position and discredit my position. Um, and so this movement of pro-aborts is far less interested in actually persuading others to their position than the pro-abortion activists were, let's say, circa early 2000s, okay? I, I mean, I, I had conversations with pro-aborts back in high school, right, early college. The pro-aborts back then were far more passionate about actually making a case for their beliefs and against those who disagree with them. So just a, a sort of a point of observation, maybe a point of encouragement as well, is that I think more and more this next generation of pro-abortion leaders uh, don't actually have a case to make. There, there really is no case against the pro-life position anymore. And so the famous saying, you know, when you have the facts, pound the facts. When you don't have the facts, pound the table and do it loudly. And there's a lot of table pounding going on out there right now as Roe versus Wade is very close to toppling over. And the abortion serviles are 
deathly afraid of losing their high sacrament of abortion that they built their entire identity around, that we have to be able to kill babies to be equal with men and be able to secure the same level of career and personal success because these pesky uteruses prevent us from having sex without responsibility. And you're really beginning to see that identity crisis play out in real time as their dependency on abortion may slowly begin to be taken away, especially in that second and third trimester. And of course, the whole abortion pill thing is another battle for the pro-life movement uh, when Roe versus Wade is overturned. So anyways, we'll be, we'll be releasing some of that content and we'd ask you to share it. I, I think it's revealing of how frantic the pro-abortion movement currently is. Uh, listen, if you like this show and this has been helpful to you, please give us a rating and review. It really helps us reach more people. Uh, I do my best to make this the, the best pro-life podcast out there, not comparing to any specific ones, but we want this to be ground zero for especially newly impassioned pro-life individuals to get equipped, encouraged, and educated to hit the beach and begin getting comfortable with being uncomfortable and speaking up for and defending the rights of those who, more than any other class of victims, are completely unable to speak up for and defend their own rights, pre-born babies. So leave us a rating and review. It really actually helps the show get greater exposure. So here's the argument, and I've been hearing this argument since I was in high school and early college, and I heard it a lot when I did the Genocide Awareness Project with a pro-life organization I was on staff with during college, and we'd set up these big photos of dead baby photos compared to photos of the Holocaust and slavery, and then we'd have dialogues with college students. I did this at uh, UC Irvine, uh, uh, Cal State Long Beach, Rio Hondo College, um, uh, San Diego State University, and many others. And you would get the more philosophically inclined pro-abortion students who would come out and they would start repeating arguments that they'd heard from their sort of woke pro-abortion philosopher professor, right? And this is one of them. And, and you, hear, you heard it even most recently from Supreme Court Justice Sonia Sotomayor that the unborn baby is really sort of just parallel to a brain-dead person. And, and usually they would say something like, well, if, if brain death marks the death of a human being, and the end of a person, then surely brain functioning or the presence of a brain would mark the beginning of a person, right? And so it's interesting that people who make these arguments typically don't want to end abortion when there is a brain, right? It's like they want abortion through all nine months of pregnancy. So it's like, oh, okay, so, okay, so you want to protect babies as soon as there's a brain or there's brain waves that are detectable on, a, on an electroencephalogram. And they're like, oh, no, it's a woman's right. It's, like, it's the same thing as the rape argument. It's like, why are you hiding behind rape victims to make your case when you don't support abortion in the case of rape? You support it in all circumstances. It's same here. It's most people who might make this case don't actually um, oppose abortion once there is a functioning brain. Uh, they don't oppose it at all. They support it through all nine months of pregnancy. So, you know, always be prepared to ask that question. Um, but there are some pro-choice moderates. There are who, who would be inclined to protect the pre-born from abortion when there is a brain or a functioning brain. So what is wrong with this argument that if brain death marks the end of a person, then surely brain functioning marks the beginning of a person, right? That's how it goes. Well, let me firstly state before I explain how that argument fails, that there are actually some neurologists who reject the, the whole brain death as an adequate criterion for the death of a human being. There are some neurologists who disagree 
that brain death is equal to no more person. Dead person, no longer in existence. Um, Christopher Kazor, who wrote a phenomenal book against abortion that I would recommend to you, he actually cites a story by neurologist D. Allen Schumann, D. Allen Schumann, and D. Allen Schumann specifically tells a story of a, of a patient that he worked with years ago that he had personal clinical experience with. And he doesn't give us the name of the boy for privacy reasons, but, but neurologist D. Allen Schumann examined a boy whom he refers to as TK, who became brain dead at age four, according to sort of every understanding or definition of brain death. This, this boy was brain dead at age four, um, but was still alive and at home at age 19. Now, you know, we could ask many questions about why the family chose to keep the child on life support and supporting them. Many would say, you know, the kid's brain dead. There's no possibility of them regaining any functions in the future. And the commonly accepted definition of death in medicine is brain death. When your, your body ceases to function in a coordinated manner, for the support of the whole human person. However, this child continued to grow, <laughs> right? Continued to be alive. And so the example of, of TK that this neurologist cites would seem to perhaps indicate that brain death is not always the death of a human being and doesn't always immediately lead to the death of a human organism. So just sort of an interesting point of fact I'm not pretending to be an expert in this field, okay, of, 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 of uh, neurology or brain functioning, um, but there are neurologists who do reject the whole brain death as an adequate criterion of the death of a human being, which would reject sort of the premise of this pro-abortion argument, right, which is if brain death marks the end of a person, then brain functioning or the presence of a brain would mark the beginning of life or a new human being. So just an interesting observation there. However, let's, let's say we grant the broad consensus that brain death is a accurate and legitimate way to determine death. Even granting that, it does not mean it is a good way to determine when life or personhood begins. So I'm rejecting the statement that if brain death is the end of a person, then the presence of a functioning brain is the beginning of a person, of a human being. Okay, I'm rejecting that comparison between the end and the beginning of brain functioning. An embryo, listen, an embryo, unlike more mature humans, does not need a brain to live. We do need a brain to live. The embryo, at their unique developmental stage, does not need a brain to live. The, the, the position that they're in developmentally does not require that. The position that we are all in developmentally does require that. And, and I want to cite and quote to you Stephen Schwartz, who wrote many years ago, the late 70s, I have the book, I just forget the date, a book called The Moral Question of Abortion. And he was one of the first philosophers to give a very sort of wide treatment of the philosophical arguments for abortion and, and explaining how they fail, right, and how they would actually justify the mistreatment of many human beings 
already born who would fail to meet that same litmus test for personhood that the pro-abortion philosophers were setting forth to deperson the preborn. So in his book, The Moral Question of Abortion, Stephen Schwartz makes this point. He says, an adult needs a brain to live, an embryo does not. The loss or absence of brain activity is not in itself crucial for deciding life or death, the presence or absence of a person. It is only crucial for certain human beings, namely those who have reached phases of development where the presence of brain activity is essential for life. The embryo has simply not reached this phase. So for him, the absence of brain activity is not crucial. That is, it is not the lack of something essential for life, but on the contrary, something perfectly normal. Does that make sense? So it's perfectly normal for the embryo to be in a position where he or she is still alive, growing, directing their own internal growth from within, but does not require the presence of a brain in order to live. <laughs> Meaning it is in virtue of being an embryonic human being to not need a brain to live. But that will not be true at later developmental stages and is certainly not true for us. So as, as Stephen Schwartz points out, the embryo is in the exact position he or she is supposed to be in, okay? It's like when people say that, oh, well, the early embryo or zygote doesn't look like a human being. Have you heard that one? It's like, how could that be a human? No, 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 no. The zygote looks exactly how a human being is supposed to look at that stage of development, right? That is what human beings look like at that age. And then they won't look like that at the fetal stage, and then the infant stage, and then the adult stage. We will all look different, but that is how a human being is supposed to look at that stage of development. In a similar way, that is how a human being is supposed to live at that stage of development. Namely, they do not need or require a brain to live. So. That's the first point to make about this argument, is that even if you grant the fact that brain death marks the end of a person, it does not follow that brain presence or the functioning of an active brain marks the beginning of a human life. Because an embryo, unlike more mature humans, does not need a brain to live. Secondly, as Stephen Schwartz points out in his book, the brain-dead person, and this may, this may be the most important point, actually, the brain-dead person is in the category of no more, while the embryo, the early unborn human being, is in the presence of, is in the category of not yet. Does that make sense? The brain-dead person will no more function in a cohesive, coordinated manner where their brain is controlling the sort of the rest of their, their bodily functions for the support of the whole organism. The unborn child or embryo is in the position of not yet. They are not yet at the stage of development that their brain will function, function in a coordinated manner for the support of their whole person. But they will given time. They just need time. That's very important. To equate a brain-dead person who, who, who is no longer going to function as a person with an unborn child who has not yet been given the opportunity to, to function in, in a coordinated manner that's, that where their brain directs the rest of their functions is actually somewhat offensive, right? Th those, are, those are such obviously different cases. Uh, the brain-dead person has suffered an irreversible loss of all coordinated bodily function including brain function. 
In short, he is dead, right? D if you disconnect him from life support, his body will begin decomposing immediately. The, the only reason he can remain alive in his brain-dead state is because of extraordinary forms of life support. Yes, his cells may still be alive, his heart may still be beating, but remove life support and he will begin decomposing immediately because he is brain dead. That's very different than the unborn child, obviously. The embryo has suffered no such loss, but is growing and directing his own internal development. The embryo may not yet have a brain, but as we said earlier, a brain is not needed to sustain its life at this early stage of development. So that's, a, that's the second most important point to make, is that the brain-dead person is in the category of no more, while the embryo is in the category of not yet. And it is in virtue of being an embryo to be in the not yet category. And by the way, we could say that in many post-natal, right, post-birth people as well, right? The infant has not yet realized self-awareness, right? The best evidence we have is that infants don't realize self-awareness until months after birth, meaning they're not aware of themselves as a unique individual who's never existed before and will never exist again and looks at themselves in the mirror and says, thanks, mom, I love the cute outfit. <laughs> so like, this, this comparison between no more and not yet can also be applied to many situations after birth as well, which, which should leave us with this takeaway. We all find ourselves on a different tick mark on the continuum of human development. But when did the continuum of human development begin? The moment of conception. And so anytime you try to separate being human from being a person with rights, it always results in savage inequality because there will always be an example of some person who's already born that won't meet that same sort of criteria for personhood that you're requiring the pre-born to meet before they're a person. Does that make sense? So that's why you never want to separate the term human from person. Anytime that's been done, savage inequality is followed. Oh, and by the way, oftentimes millions of people are murdered. Abortion, Holocaust, slavery, go down and down the historical list, right? So those are the first two problems with making the argument that if brain death marks the end of a person, brain function marks the beginning of a person. And I think so far we've seen that's clearly just not the case. However, let's take this one step further. Further, As Stephen Schwartz points out in his book, The Moral Question of Abortion, what if instead of being in a position of no more, the brain dead person was in a position of maybe more? Meaning like maybe they will regain all of their, their brain functions such that they will then continue to live their life as a whole human person? What if there was a chance that they were partially brain dead but not fully brain dead and could regain their functions? Would we then still pursue a policy of removing life support if there was a chance for life? Probably not. This is an interesting point that he makes in his book. He points out that the brain death is used as a criterion to determine death precisely because after brain death, a human being will no longer function as a person in the future. I mean, they are dead. They will not return, okay? And they will no longer be that person again. So this lack of, of what he calls potentiality 
leads to the determination of death. Does that make sense? There is no potential, in other words, for this brain-dead person to become a person again. They're dead. They're not coming back. Does that make sense? But if there is potentiality for normal human activity, then the case would look totally different, right? If the brain is only temporarily not functioning properly, and the human being will be able to flourish in the future, then brain death has not taken place and we wouldn't pull the plug, right? If it's just a temporary cessation of brain functioning. And if you know that, you would not be justified in removing life support. But as Stephen Schwartz points out, this is precisely the position the human fetus or embryo is in, right? Whose lack of function is not permanent, but only temporary due to a lack of maturity. They're going to function as a person in the future. They just cannot fully function as, a, as an autonomous individual who's, who's aware of themselves and whose brain is fully developed, right? But they will give in time. So the fetal status is akin closer to a temporary a coma patient from which someone will entirely recover rather than being brain dead. So, so that's a, probably the most powerful point Stephen Schwartz makes in his book addressing this brain dead argument is that the comparison between the fetus and the brain-dead person is not the best comparison. The best comparison would be between the fetus and the temporary coma patient, right? Because the fetus is also in a position of temporarily not having full brain functioning, right? Although their brain is functioning exactly how it should function at that stage of development, but not like ours does today. So. If the, if the a coma patient was in a position of maybe more, we would certainly allow them to continue living through life support so that they can function properly again in the future. But why exactly is the brain of such importance for personhood anyways? This obsession that the pro-abortion movement has with dehumanizing the pre-born by saying, uh, well, they don't have a brain in the first four weeks. And until they do, how could you possibly think that's a person? It, it's sort of, it's sort of a, a strange fascination with the brain because are we the only living beings who have brains? No. As, as Christopher Kazor <clears throat> points out in his book, earthworms, wasps, and ants all have brains. <laughs> But none of us would say that they count as persons, right, with rights. So when the left grounds most of their arguments in sort of materialism anyways, that we're just all different forms of animals, that we're just sort of cosmic accidents, that there's no sort of dignity attached to the individual. We're just more rational monkeys, right? And we're certainly not more valuable. That's why the folks at PETA are, like actually talk about speciesism 
the speciesism is this like very strange belief that discriminating against animals by granting human beings more value is just as bad as discriminating against other people because they have a different skin color, <laughs> right? So you have like racism, ageism, sexism, and then the left talks about speciesism. <laughs> like, oh, you think you're more valuable than an elephant or an ant? That's speciesism because we're all just different forms of life and no form of life is any more valuable than another form of life. But of course, no one actually lives like they believe that, right? Because if they did, oh my gosh, they would be burning down in and out burgers, right? They would be burning down meat factories for participating in the genocide of cows, right? No one actually, what? remember, cows are no more valuable as a form of life than human beings. <laughs> so it's very, very strange, but that's sort of their belief, right? It's just pure materialism. It's just, we're all just different forms of life. There's no dignity attached to being a human being, a homo sapient. Um, and so if earthworms, wasps, ants, elephants, and people have brains, Who's to say who's more valuable than another? So why, why exactly is the brain of such importance for personhood anyways? Why are they focusing on that? Because if it's just the presence of a brain and human beings carry no more dignity than animals, then any animal who has an active brain, a functioning brain, would be a person as well, right? Uh, no, nobody actually lives like that. And then let's, let's end with this. Do you just need a brain to be a person with rights, or do you need a full, completed brain? Because the left often can't decide which argument they want to go with. So what do I mean by this? I've talked to pro-abortion people when I've debated them on college campuses, and I've heard both. I've heard one argument say, when there is a brain, once there is a brain, it doesn't need to meet a certain litmus test of functioning, it just has to be there. As soon as there's a brain, that, then that's a person, that's a new human being who should not be killed. The other argument, a little bit more radical, of course, says that a, it has to be a fully developed brain because even the pro-abortion activist can acknowledge that there is a brain by the first trimester, six weeks or less, but is it fully developed, right? Is it as fully developed as the baby's brain at birth? No, because the brain's still developing, the human being's still developing. Frankly, men don't reach their mental peak until they're 40. So in many ways, my brain is still developing because I haven't reached my full mental capacity. Do you see what I mean? So they, the, the, the other argument, rather than just saying there has to be a brain to be a person, they say there has to be a fully developed brain, you know, or, or a developed brain. Well, who gets to decide, right, the, the line of developed? Like at what point does it become developed enough to be a person? That's where you get into the very scary and murky waters of justifying killing people outside the womb as well. So if the standard is simply having a brain, then personhood and a right to life would begin within the first trimester. By the way, brain waves have been detected and recorded on what's called an EEG, it's called an electroencephalogram, by day 40. Okay, by day 40. Now, remember, most women don't know they're pregnant until usually the earliest is four weeks, right? Typically five weeks often. So the earliest abortions are five weeks, typically, six weeks. Five and six weeks would be the earlier side of abortions. Between five and eight weeks would actually be the disproportionate amount of abortions majority in our country. Well, if brainwaves are detected on an EEG by day 40, right, then I think we need to immediately end a whole lot of abortions 
But even the pro-abortion activist who argues that, there, that once there's a brain, you're a person, doesn't want to do that, right? They have no interest in protecting the unborn child at that stage. Now, if the standard is having a fully developed brain, okay, then young children and college students could be justifiably killed as well. <laughs> Your brain's developing like crazy at, at four, five, six, seven, eight, nine years old, frankly, even in college. Uh, so you don't really want to go with that route, okay? So, so that, that, that's another, the, sort of the last important point to make about this strange argument that you're not a person until you have a brain or a functioning brain. A functioning brain is going to range across decades of human development. So you don't really want to go with that one. If you go with any, just any brain, then why not earthworms or wasps or elephants? And then if you say, no, it's just a human brain, well, then that's there in the first trimester, so we need to end a bunch of abortions in the first trimester. They don't want to do that either. So like most pro-abortion arguments, they're, they're, sort of just, <laughs> they're sort of just like randomly throwing out differences they perceive between the unborn and the born to try to argue that such differences are decisive, that they're value-giving in the first place, right? Be because what else are they going to do? They have to justify their position that the unborn is not a person and doesn't have any rights. They know it's a human being, so they have to come up with some difference, some difference about why those differences between the unborn and the born justify killing the unborn in the first place. And of course, this is what the practitioners of genocide have always done, right? The racists argued, well, look how different the black man is. <clears throat> Come on, he's stupider and he's got different, he's got, look, look at that black skin. How could that be a person? Now, you and I would say, of course, today, well, those differences don't matter. You're still a person, right? Nazis say, well, look at those Jews, right? Uh, the, the, that religion and that appearance, very different than us. We say, well, those don't matter. The same thing with abortion. They say, look at these differences between the unborn and the born. But the case of the pro-lifer is this. There is no value-giving difference between the unborn human being you once were and the adult you are today that would justify killing you at that earlier stage. So that's, that's sort of, I think, a good treatment of this argument. So I'll just sort of summarize it for you. Some neurologists actually reject the whole brain death as an adequate criterion of the death of the human being anyways. An embryo, unlike more mature humans, actually does not need a brain to live. It's in virtue of being at that developmental stage to be able to live without a brain. The brain-dead person is in the category of no more, while the embryo is in the category of not yet. If a partially brain-dead person was in the position of maybe more, maybe they will regain their their functional capacities as a person with a functioning brain, then we would not remove life support because they might regain that potentiality. They have the potentiality to regain their um, status with a functioning brain, and that's the position that the embryo or fetus is in. They are only temporarily not able to function like we are with our brains, but they will in the future. And then lastly, of course, why exactly is the brain of such importance for personhood anyways? Because other creatures have brains and we don't count them as persons. And so Stephen Schwartz finishes with this great line, very simple, okay, and we'll cap the show with this. He says, only a human being can develop a human brain. A human brain cannot develop before a human being exists. <laughs> so human beings begin 
when sperm and egg meet, sperm and egg die, a new human being comes into existence. This is called conception or fertilization. It's basically undisputed in, in science, in the science of embryology, right, between biologists, embryologists, neonatologists, okay? Human life begins at the moment of conception. We know this. Anyone who says otherwise is lying to you, okay? Or they're trying to, um, they're trying to, to argue that being biologically human does not make you a full human. So then what's the marker at which you become a full human, right? So we all know that human life begins at the moment of conception. Only a human being can develop a human brain and a human brain cannot develop before a human being exists. So whatever human brain is developing, it's a human being who's developing that brain, who's actually coordinating their own internal growth, right? Mothers or doctors are not like begging the baby to grow. They're not reminding him to stay on his growth schedule. The child is developing himself or herself from within and happens to be at an earlier stage in their physical development, but is still fully human. As soon as you begin to argue that certain developmental markers must be met before you gain personhood and a right to life, the only result you will be left with is savage inequality, for there will always be some example or series of examples in which human beings outside of the womb fail to meet that developmental marker as well and could therefore be justifiably killed. So the only way to maintain human equality and human rights is to ground it in the only thing we have in common, a human nature. And when did we get a human nature? Oh, when we became human. And when did we become human? The moment of conception. That's follow the science, okay? That's the science of embryology. That's facts and logic. And I think I made a pretty good case for showing that if you argue that brain death marks the end of a person, so therefore brain function marks the beginning of a person, you run into some problems. Um, and so that's some of the science and that's some of the sort of philosophy about where those ideas actually lead when played out in the real world. Well, thanks for joining the show today. Head on over to iTunes, Spotify, YouTube, give the show a rating and review. Really helps us reach more people. Don't forget to sign up for the Love Life Conference, lovelifecalifornia.org. This Saturday, January 29th at Calvary Chapel, Chino Hills, we will have well over a thousand people there, hundreds tuning in online, lovelifecalifornia.org, Kirk Cameron, Nick Vujicic, Melissa Odin, Anthony Leventino, the former abortionist, and many other special guests as well to get educated, encouraged, and equipped to engage abortion as the church in California to take back spiritual ground in life here because an awakened, revived church is not only the only solution to turning America around, but it's also probably the only solution to ending abortion in this country. It's such a propitious moment to protect the preborn and end abortion. LoveLifeCalifornia.org. Go sign up. We'd love to see you there in person. If you want to learn more and engage with me online, follow me on Instagram, on uh, Twitter, Facebook, where I'm most active, and most recently TikTok as well. Uh, we have uh, someone helping run that because I don't want to be on that garbage platform. But hey, a lot of young people on there, easy to go viral, want to change minds, change hearts, and save lives at a very important time. Connect with me on there. If you want to book me for an event or see my speaking schedule, go to sethgruber.com, S-E-T-H-G-R-U-B as in baby boy, E-R.com. Until next week, I'm Seth Gruber, and this is Unaborted. We'll